Hi, hello, and how are you, my beautiful strangers, savages alike out there in podcast land? This is Rue of IPO, the Armchair Elitist, and I am your Armchair Elitist. Here today on our episode of 1001 Movies, You Must See Before You Die, we will be starting the Quentin Tarantino saga. But before we get to that, um, I would just like to say um, a belated Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays and New Year to all yours, excuse me, you and yours. Um, but time rolls on. Into 2019 we roll and times are always changing as the topics are always changing here in, pod, in podcast land and on iPoke. So let me just uh, start with some of the craziness that's happened. Um I just have to drop this even though there's still really just an obscene amount of of uncertainty about the whole situation. But John Bones Jones, the UFC light heavyweight, well, former, I guess, light heavyweight champion, um, he tested positive again for um, Trandoval, the same thing. I think it was Trandoval. I I could be wrong on that. But they're saying... It's not certain, but they're saying that um, basically he wasn't doping. Um, there's no steroids this time. It wasn't, oh, he fucked up again. It's just, there was, forgive me if I'm abusing the term or using the wrong one, but it's a nanogram, which is like a, a billionth of a piece of sand worth, you know, of that. And they say that it was from the testing that he filled last year, that it was still in his system just barely a bit. And basically, they're still going to have the fights. And before any of this information was released, I just must have to, I have to throw this out there, that the UFC simply changed the location from the original to Los Angeles. It's like, all the fighters, and the family of the fighters, the fans, everybody, was, they were kind of, you know, no, not kind of, they were fucked. Because, I mean, hotel stays, the fees, travel, fucking, it's the holidays, you know, everything, you know, the... Everything's inflated as far as expenses. Um, Now they have to go and, yes, refunds are available, but come on, man. Like, the UFC really, really has great moments this year, but they really fucking slacked in in others. And I gotta say, I'm just so glad the Bellator is just, you know, in my opinion, kicking ass. Like, it's kind of like back in the 90s with the professional wrestling wars. <laughs> you know, you had WCW World Championship Wrestling, and then you had WWF at the time, uh, World Wrestling Federation. And they, you know, they went head-to-head on Monday nights. It actually later on became known as the Monday Night Wars, quote-unquote, because they were on the same time slot on Monday nights, and it was, you know, who's going to see, who's going to tune in to see who? And... I don't know, it's nothing like that as far as competition, you know, com- like competing with, you know, one another, the brands, Bellator and UFC, but I must say, Bellator's really putting together just the purest type of fights. On that note, um, really quick, speaking of Bellator, I did, I haven't actually been able to keep up because of the holidays, but I did just recently see Bellator, I think it was 212 or one, something like that. Uh, my personal idol, Frank Mir, just fought. Um, a relatively unknown dude, 
I'll be honest. I honestly cannot even say his name right now. I did, this podcast was not very well um, organized or structured. I literally just got the inspiration, and I thought, hey, well, let's record. But the dude did uh, straight flatten and starch uh, Sergey uh, Karatanov. Um, like, he knocked him the fuck out. Uh, who else did he beat? He beat some names, is my point. And the dude's good, but I don't know what happened exactly with Mir. Um, he was doing really good. Like, he really... It's a double-edged sword with what was happening, because he was doing good because of his handwork, you know, his... Excuse me, his footwork, and his hands, his boxing has improved, his angles, um, his timing... He dresses up his uh, shots a lot better, but now that's actually, like I said, is a double-edged sword, because just like with the Mark Hunt fight, he went from the jiu-jitsu phenom, you know, ending fights in 30 seconds, you know, give or take, on average, to a man that has fallen in love with his discipline, his new discipline, I might put the emphasis on, uh, of boxing. And while that's good to, you know, be diverse, especially in MMA, mixed martial arts. It's not good whenever you are against a far superior, far superior athlete. I mean, you're already at the elite level. You're you have an elite level of jiu-jitsu. You're gonna just strike. Anyway, sorry, I just rambled a bit. But what happened was kind of uncertain, like I said. But basically, the position was first round went pretty freaking well. Mir got a takedown. Mir got more strikes. Blah blah blah. Second round comes, he gasses a tad bit, but I'll tell you, not really so much the gas tank problem, because he looked about the same shape, almost, as UFC 100 against Brock Lesnar the second time, and that was the best shape of his life, as far as shredded, cut, functional muscle-wise, you know. Um, you know, UFC 112, I believe it was, against Shane Carlin, he just looked like the fucking Hulk, that was, you know, whenever... Uh, testosterone replacement therapy and or TRT was still legal but nonetheless he was up against the cage um, you know the wall and brawl um, defensive position which he finds himself in regularly and this I, I hate calling him unknown because I really do have respect for anyone that steps into any organization's cage let alone a man that beats my personal idol <laughs> makes him tap to strikes which is just not Frank Mir. But he simply had his head in Mir's chest and was just, you know, kind of pummeling away like you do almost like a single uh, collar tie, but he didn't really have it. And he just kept punching. And then he hit Mir in an awkward place in the mouth. And Mir just literally, it's like he broke a tooth or something. He just goes, oh, and he starts tapping his strikes like around the dude's shoulder. It was very awkward, very anticlimactic. And right at the holidays is, you know, whenever I see him, as I said previously, it is my, one of my personal main idols in life. Well, then it makes martial arts, and I gotta say, it was just disheartening. But it is what it is, and on a more pleasant note, um, good God, I'm a little late on this, but Max Holloway and Brian Ortega, holy shit, that was a fight. Um, actually, I should say that was a card. Good Christ. The John and Shane check. Excuse me, I always fuck that last name up, just like be. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but it's... Oh, my gosh. Her and Shevchenko, you see, they fought three times previously in pure Muay Thai. And 
you know, Joanna lost all three, but this one, you know, is very close. It wasn't a split, it was a unanimous decision, but it was still very close. The only reason um, Valentina won so, you know, one-sidedly was because she would set up takedowns with her striking, and Joanna came in, you know, kind of with the reminiscence of the Muay Thai bouts. So she was worried about some stand-up. And then also she was outside. She also, you know, let's not forget she was coming up from strawweight division, which is 115 pounds, and to the flyweight division for the women, which is 125. But yeah, it's that's pretty much my little picket of the day. I don't talk politics too much. I don't do this. I usually talk MMA, pop culture, music, this and that, art. But uh, yeah, holidays went well. Hope it went well for you. And yours, um, yeah, that's pretty much where I'm going to leave that segment, meaning my, the beginning of my show, which to me is just kind of rambling. My real segment is the rest of the show, and that is 1001 movies you have to see before you die. These movies are not all the greatest of or the best of. These actually, some of them are horrible movies. I've mentioned this in previous podcasts because I did recently ch- change the uh, format, but the, some of these literally will provoke anger, sad, sadness, depression, like guilt, like just uncomfortableness, and then others, joy, you know, everything. It, my point is good, bad, ugly does not matter. As long as it provokes a human emotion... That is the cinematic adventure that I'm trying to break down and analyze for you people as cinephile myself. And, of course, as the self-proclaimed armchair elitist. So, stay strange, and we will get right into the beginning of the Quentin Tarantino saga. So here we are. This is the first segment of a little thing I'm going to like to do with my um, show. Thought 1001 thing, um, excuse me, movies, this, or cinematic adventures as I like to call them, that you need to see before you die. Thought-provoking, positive or negative, irrelevant. I'm going to do a little segment. Um, every week, I'm going to do one specific director. Maybe famous to the point where you've heard of him. He may be renowned to the point of obscurity where you don't have no idea who he is. But I, as a cinephile, meaning a person who studies movies, studies, you know, the cin- cinematography that basically expresses what most things can't, what most scripts, texts can't, what most audio files can't. It's just a different enigmatic form of progressive expression and aesthetic aesthetic descriptions that honestly could never be duplicated. We will be doing a segment uh, weekly. Excuse me, I will be doing a segment weekly on um, these directors and chronologically their films in linear order. <laughs> So I'm starting with the Quentin Tarantino saga, which will be spread throughout a day or two, and there will be many episodes, as many episodes as he has movies. Um, so please check those out, and yes, 
Times are always changing, and the topics are always changing. All my beautiful strangers and savages, please enjoy yourselves, and welcome to the Quentin Tarantino Saga. Part 1. Well, Quentin Tarantino's career began in the late 1980s, actually. He uh, wrote and directed, um, quote-unquote, My Best Friend's Birthday. And the screenplay, actually, <laughs> it's a little known fact, it actually later formed the basis for his indie movie, True Romance, which I would put as his first movie, but that was not officially his first movie by any means. Um, his first movie was the 1992 black comedy heist film, Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> and a little known fact is, it's amazing because it's set new grounds just through its cinematic, you know, standard and structure, but a little known fact was it was actually funded by the money from the sale of uh, Tarantino's script that he wrote. I don't know if you ever heard of it, but it was a little script, I don't know, called Natural Born Killers that he sold to, I don't know, Oliver Stone, which, I don't know, became, hmm, no big deal, just kind of a cult classic, you know, just to a lot of people. <laughs> but it's pretty amazing because uh, Empire, the uh, review company, deemed Reservoir Dogs as the greatest independent film of all time. And I must say, in my humble opinion, <clears throat> I don't know if I agree with that. You have so many throughout time, especially since 1992. Different directors, different genres, different countries, all the above, and all the under. You have such films such as Night of Cups from, I believe it was 2015 or 2014. That was one of the most artistic movies I've ever seen. Uh, Yes, reminiscently, speaking on uh, Natural Born Killers, that was literally one of his, you know, it was originally Tarantino says, you know, it's his because he wrote it, but he sold it to Oliver Stone. So Oliver Stone, to the day he dies, would be like, that was my movie. But in reality, even Natural Born Killers was his. And um, you can kind of tell by the, you know, ultra-violent-esque type of uh, surroundings and the overacting, et cetera, et cetera. But it, there are so many damn movies. I, I really can't feel a little embarrassed right here. You know, this is originally and still known as the Confessions of a Cinephile, a thousand and one movies you must watch and or learn about before you die. And I actually can't think of five movies that um, would make my point right now. Not gonna lie, the holidays have taken hold of me, and so has the holiday booze. But at the same time, there's just too yeah, there's just too really there's too many movies to be to make that statement by the Empire, quote unquote, that's the business um, saying this greatest independent movie of all time. I just can't back that up as much as I absolutely adore this film. I, like a lot of, you know, mid-twenties males that are into cinema, truly, absolutely just fucking worship Tarantino, you know, Stanley Kubrick, fucking, God, J.J. Abrams, fucking, 
Oh my god, I know I'm just facing on so many right now. Just <laughs> this damn booth. I am a great cinephile, ladies and gentlemen. All my beautiful strangers, I was just like, let me just reassure you, I am an endless just pit of stupid cinematic knowledge. My friends literally have the nickname for me Encyclopedia. But right now I'm kind of failing you. So I'm just going to kind of start on my little bit that I had. Reservoir Dogs, the 1992 Quentin Tarantino film, was technically his first. As I said, True Romance was not. Um, and just, just by the way, on the uh, whole, you know, Reservoir Dogs being the greatest, being, excuse me, proclaimed the greatest independent film of all time, even Quentin Tarantino is quoted as saying, my films are all my children. I love them all. <laughs> But at the end of the day, I'm always going to have a soft spot for Reservoir Dogs. That was my first, the one that changed my life. End quote. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a bold statement from me. Especially a man as renowned and just legendary at this point is Quentin Tarantino. He's so prolific that it's, it's obscene in this cinematic universe. It's really ridiculous. He's... He's like God with a 14-inch dick, you know what I'm saying? Like, holy shit. Like, it just really gets to the... Oh, yeah, by the way. Um, here on iPoke, I literally give negative fucks. So you'll have to excuse the explicit content because there will never be an editing of my uh, terminology. <laughs> no matter how proper or improper it is. So you'll have to excuse me, people. I mean, no disrespect to anybody, any race, any... Sexual orientation, any of those PC bullshit things, I don't care. I hate everyone equally. I love everyone equally. <laughs> it's very simple. I'm, I'm a walking contradiction, people. It's filled with cinematic knowledge. That's why I got this podcast to talk to y'all. It's all one or two of my followers or listeners. <laughs> I appreciate every single one of you in all seriousness that uh, take any second, even if you just start an episode, by the way, and you listen and you take that second out of your life and then you stop and say, fuck this guy. I still want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking your time to listen to my audio profile depression. My my silent screams, if you will. And um, yeah, I really cannot wait to gosh, I'm just very excited that this is the way I'm starting off this uh, little I'll call it a sub-segment, on Confessions of Cinephile 1001 movies to you must watch and or learn about before you die, with uh, Rue, your armchair elitist. I am so happy that the first person is Quentin Tarantino, because he's such a person, I'm so biased on this, but uh, he's just, he's a charismatic, he's a charismatic enigma that is very, very, very controversial and criticized. Very misunderstood, but... God damn, does he put out art. I mean, even The Hateful Eight, in my opinion, which one, of, which was one of his weakest movies, actually, in, in my opinion. I'll get into that another day, for the reasons why, but even that one was a masterpiece, is my point. Like, even his shittiest movies are fucking classics, and we must appreciate that. Let's see. I want to say that 
Um, yeah. It was by Doggy Dog Entertainment, was the name of the production company in the U.S. Um, the film ran 99 minutes. Um, let's see here. Who produced it? Uh, Lawrence Bender produced it. Uh, Tarantino, of course, had the screenplay. I believe Sekula, um, Andres Sekula, did the photography, and uh, Harvey Keitel was in the cast, Tim Roth, my boy Michael Madsen, fucking Chris Penn, rest in peace, Steve Buscemi with his large ass teeth, Lawrence Turney, Randy Brooks, uh, uh, oh God. Oh, Kirk, Kirk Baltz, uh, Edward Bunker, Tarantino himself, he actually made his, um, on-camera on debut in his own film. <laughs> you can just, no, I'm, just, I'm actually not kidding at all. It's very egotistical. Who are you, Tommy Wiseau? <laughs> um, it had a, also let's see, a Rich Turner. It's going to get a little obscure, like I said. I'm a true cinephile. I just forget at some moments and I have brain farts. But it, David Steen, Tommy Cosmo, Steve O'Fletty, uh, Michael Stottle, Excuse me, Sottle, um, and there's a few others, of course, but a few others. There's many others that I'm forgetting, but those, you know, it had a cast is what I'm saying for a very, actually, you know what I should say is it had a cast that was unknown, completely and absurdly unknown, but they were to be future legends. Because Tarantino has that amazing style where he just... It's almost like the DC type shit, you know? Like it, everything just runs together. It just works. I don't know. I'm just... I, I love the actual art in this. The, um... And it's art, too. Because Tarantino's original budget was just $30,000. That is, you know, a fucking factory worker's yearly average uh income like here in lebanon missouri for example at a boat factory <laughs> like it's not much money at all and um i gotta say it's pretty amazing because something very rare happened and harvey keitel the man you know one of the main cast members actually the main cast member he actually threw in some of his own money which i mean tarantino's been a huge fan of Keitel you know, Harvey Keitel for a long time. He's in basically all of his movies, only plays the badass in every way, you know, whether it's suave, sleek, a different breed, dangerous, whatever it may be. But because of uh, Keitel's little <laughs> chip-in, if you will, the fucking budget went from $30,000, like I said, a yearly average income for a boat factory worker in Missouri. And it was raised to $1.5 million. So I must say, the 92 film by Tarantino, <laughs> it's... God damn. Oh, where do I even start? It, it's, it's a revelation in so many ways. Because, okay, self-confessed video geek, Quentin Tarantino, he was... Uh, 28 when he wrote the script for this uh, ambitious groundbreaking and I also might add much imitated <laughs> movie 
It's a title apparently came from a patron of the video store where Tarantino used to work, who referred to Aravor Alessa Fontes, a 1987 film that uh, translated as that Reservoir Dog movie. <laughs> oh my gosh. This movie is just... It's an enigma. It's dripping with quotable dialogue and just superb performances from the almost totally male cast. Sexism! <laughs> the good old days now. 100% kidding uh, to all the feminists out there. But, uh, no. <laughs> it is true, though. <laughs> it was basically an all-male cast. But it... It's not fit for a bunch of women, just like that new stupid act. Don't even get me started on the remake of Ghostbusters. That's for another day and for another different breed of anger. <laughs> but with the totally, you know, misogynistic to all the oversensitive fucking people out there and our, oh, I almost said a horrible word, in our very uh, watered-down society, <laughs> the misogynistic cast was made that way because Reservoir Dogs tells the story simply of simply, look at my eye of the complex story of the bloody aftermath of a diamond heist gone wrong, right? And in reminiscence or flashback whatever the fuck you want to say we see the criminals as they are brought together by Joe Cabot played by Lawrence Turney who by the way oh my gosh, there are stories <laughs> <laughs> behind the scenes of, oh my gosh, Mr. Joe, you know, the main mob guy, or the the ominous, dark, shady boss guy that sends them all in this failed thing, like, played by Lawrence, uh, Lawrence Turney, he, he, in real life, Lawrence, apparently was just, actually, that character, he was just an asshole behind the scenes, he tried to fight everybody from Tarantino to Madsen to fucking Kaitel. it's just a funny bunch of facts, I mean I'd love to say story, but these are facts ladies and gentlemen, straight facts, and yeah, he was still great though, I, rest in peace, you know he's gone now, I'm about 99.9% .9 sure, and he was a great actor, definitely made a very uh, vital part of the movie, Excuse me, on mic burp, that's so professional, right? Obviously. None of whom, though, out of all these robbers, they they don't know each other's real identities, you know, you know, for, because they don't want to make it, excuse me, they're making it impossible for anyone to rat their accomplices out of the room. And they're given uh, new names or monikers or nicknames, whatever the fuck you want to call them. Mr. Brown, played by Tarantino, the, um, the witty, the jerky, the little smart aleck that will shoot you in the fucking face if you challenge his smart, smart aleckism, <laughs> if you will, love the term I just made up, uh, Mr. Pink, excuse me, he's played by Steve Buscemi, very well-known actor. He's never really got his break, I must say, but in this movie, definitely delivers. Uh, let's see. Uh, who am I missing? Uh, young Mr. Orange. He was... Uh, played by... Yeah, of course, played by Tim Roth, um, who ended up later on being basically Quentin Tarantino's boy. You know, he's in Hateful Eight. He's in 
Pulp Fiction. He's in he's in basically every Tarantino movie in some capacity or another. Tim Roth is amazing. And I must say, I love the fact that Tarantino stuck with him. And then, I mean, gosh. Uh, World Weary, um, Mr. White, uh, played by Harvey Keitel, the man, Mr. Suave, Mr. Put it in your mom and not even call her back. And it still doesn't matter because it's that back. He's slinging dick to anybody, man. It's, it's a different day, though. As Joey Diaz would say. Oh, man. He's just, he's dropping dick off wherever it may be. But at the same time, he has morals, he has characters. Well, I won't say morals, he is a hitman. <laughs> but he definitely has character, and he definitely has codes and omurtas, there you go. Being, he, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but he does some very honorable things because of his own beliefs. That's Mr. White. And then my personal fucking, <laughs> I'm such a twisted person for this, but my personal favorite, and the, uh, if I was in the Reservoir Dogs, the man that I would definitely be, in my eyes, of course not, it'd be the lamest fucking one, probably a woman, or a dog that's getting raped, <laughs> excuse me, sodomized, so on PC, I shouldn't do too many of these episodes while under the influence of some nice liquid courage, because it just allows me to break down the walls of Jericho, if you will. <laughs> Shout out to Chris Jericho and Talk is Jericho. Check that podcast out. It is amazing. Legend. Straight legend. But, um... The violence. Last but not least, as they would always say. Mr. Blonde. Played by my man. Michael Madsen. Yeah, I know. Shitty impression. But Michael Madsen, the always cool, the always chill, yet the always volatile, combustible, unpredictable wild card that is him. In every film, he plays the same character, yet a completely different character. It is a walking contradiction that catches chaos itself on fire. And let me tell you... Ugh. It is a creepily mesmerizing, just an ominously enchanting performance <laughs> that Madsen gives as, you know, the ultra-violent, you know, sociopath, Mr. Belong. In, in a series of revealing scenes, we learn about the events, you know, that have led to the film's Blood-soaked climbing, or blood-soaked, literally, you know how Tarantino rolls. He rolls straight red. But, uh, the events that led to, uh, the film's blood-soaked climax in a warehouse is revealed, of course. It's very unlinear, though. You know how it is. It starts out at the beginning. It's, it's one of those Tarantino trademarks, if you will. A lot of people do, but... You know, like I said in the very beginning of the podcast, this is a much imitated movie. This is a this is a trendsetter for sure. <clears throat> Excuse me, very much. I apologize. But it isn't just the clever and I can't say the word ambitious enough when it comes to Tarantino and innovative plotting that makes this film such a '90s classic. Just like 
by the way, the second film that Tarantino, the second official film that uh, Tarantino directed, I don't know, Pulp Fiction, <laughs> from the amazing movie that uh, revived John Travolta's career from 1994. Um, the movie is, you know, cleverly cut, cleverly cast. Like I said, I mean, he kind of sticks with a gang, if you will, of people, and he has a lot of loyalty. I'm talking Madsen, Keitel, Roth, all giving career best performances. Like, and actually, career best performances, I, I'm about 90% sure that's actually a quote. Like, these people really put their best on that screen every time. Like, they were under his direction. And I gotta say, it's always captivating. It's always something that makes it in. Just like the point of discussing this and analyzing this and breaking it down, it invokes everything from laugh. I laugh my ass off. I sometimes will cringe. Sometimes I'll be sad. Sometimes I'll be horny. <laughs> sometimes I'll be angry. Sometimes I'll be fucking disgusted. Sometimes I'll be guilty. There's a. It's real art. It is the cinema, cinema, it's the cinematic expression of a true genius that aesthetically has provided with, provided us a nice, incredibly deep dive into his mind that's just like a, a million exploding volcanoes. All erupting at once. All those volcanoes are just explosive, chaotic, controversial, edgy ideas that may fail or may become one of the greatest things of all time. And it's a true pleasure to even speak about him and be heard. Because there's a million opinions out there, there's a million podcasts out there. But to all my beautiful strangers and savages out there, like in podcast land, podcast bill, whatever you want to call it, as a self-proclaimed armchair elitist, I am a nobody. I am, as I've discussed before, very briefly, and just I'll do it briefly because it's not really about me, this is about the art. I'm a 27-year-old, one-eyed, because of a car wreck, not, I don't just have one eye, like one-eyed Willie from the fucking Goonies, but, uh, I'm now a blind in one eye, handicapped, um, fighter, cinephile, uh, writer, just, gosh, what the, how the fuck do you even label yourself, you know what I mean, genres are kind of irrelevant today, unless it's music or cinema, mm, excuse me, but nonetheless, It's, I'll just say it's a pleasure to even speak on his work, because I will never, nobody will ever be able to replicate, let alone even come close, really, to producing the innovative quality of that, quote-unquote, that side of the tracks, true, true way of life, the structure of that living, you know what I mean, like, 
the beginning of Reservoir Dogs where they're talking in the diner. And they're just talking about random ass shit. Just dialogue, 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 dialogue. It's like, dude, is this a Hitman movie or what the fuck? And then the credits roll. And it's a cool fucking movie. You got these dudes in black suits with those fucking cool little Ray-Bans on. But it's playing one of the weirdest 70 songs ever. And I'm so sorry for not having more details on this. On, you know, specific song, the artist, all this, this and that. But this was, like I said, not structured. This is a very impromptu podcast. I promise you there will be more structure and there will be always more content. I'm about to go premium here on Podbean and... I'm definitely upgrading to be able to give you all unlimited amounts of my bullshit. <laughs> but I gotta say, it's... I don't know, it's... He has a, uh, he has a euphoric blanket that will just fall right over your head with every single move that he makes. And it's a real honor just to speak on his work, because it will never be replicated, as I said. And if it is replicated in some way... Then it's exactly that. It's a replication. It is not the original copy. Because there's one original copy. And in my opinion, Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs is a trailblazer of a cinematic adventure. And nothing less. It's packed with uh, memorable scenes like that have become part of fuck, literal cinematic history. I mean, shit. Uh... God, each shirt containing pop culture references that are not recognized as trademarks of his scripts. Uh, whether it's the scene that I just discussed in which uh, the men, you know, they're talking or convening or conversing, whatever you want to say, in a coffee shop before the heist. You know, discuss everything from the etiquette of tipping to the real meaning of Madonna's like a virgin. <laughs> Which, by the way, uh, their conclusion being, you know, I would say a little too explicit to, uh, <laughs> I'll just say, actually, you know what, I will draw a line there. I'm not going to be that person. Uh, I poke does not edit itself, but I will edit out what they, <laughs> what they concluded that Madonna's like a virgin <laughs> song meant, actually. And I will say it was Tarantino's uh, character that gave the uh, analysis so that's definitely um it's <laughs> definitely something to check out oh, i'll just say it's basically like a very explicit to put it in best terms pornographic talk <laughs> my gosh or uh it even goes to a uh, other memorable things, like the shocking ear tablet, you know, with Madsen, Mr. Wiggins, for getting the unforgettable use of, God, the great song, man, Steeler Wheels classic, Stuck in the Middle with You, that's the best song for a torture scene ever, and Quentin Tarantino made it that way, that's the only reason, because otherwise that song would never be relevant to that context, ever, but because of him, that song is played, and in that context, it's actually very, very suave, cool, fun, hip, if you will. It's something else, man. It's something else. <sighs> Tarantino chooses his words, though. 
and actions so cleverly that the character development is amazing. I mean, the, it's much is revealed about each character's personality, no matter how trivial the words are, and no matter how trivial the words are that they speak, you know? Like, it's truly a film that you need to see. And I'm so sorry I did not mention this at the beginning of the show. We're about to wrap it up here, but I'm going to do my best not to give vital spoilers out. So, you know, if I ever do, obviously there will be a spoiler alert. But I, I hope that I did my best to give my little... My little bit, as I say here on my book, I don't give my two cents, I give my two million cents. Um, I hope I was able to do it on this first edition and first part of the Quentin Tarantino saga being Reservoir Dogs. I hope I did that. I gave you all a bunch of orgasms filled with knowledge and love nectar for the soul. <laughs> about this movie without ruining it for you. I f yeah, I feel like a lot of the vital, vital things... Yeah, there we go. I think I actually did a successful job as far as not spoiling it for you. But if my analysis is unsatisfactory to you, that's okay. Once again, thank you for your time. Thank you for being interested in cinema. Thank you for appreciating cinema as much as I do. And thank you for simply just being you. Whether you're an asshole, a bitch, a fucking kind person, a gentleman, or just a straight cunt. I mean, gosh. Either way. Don't shit. Thank you. <laughs> my gosh. I can't say enough about this movie. And I do apologize for my dragging delivery of this, but it will not all be like this in Here at I Poke, the Armchair Elitist podcast, with me, the Armchair Elitist Rube. Times are always changing, the topics are always changing, as are my deliveries. And this time you got a pretty soft-spoken one. It's like the gentle sounds of the rain and cinematic information coming straight to you the day after Christmas. 2019 is rolling up on us, people. I gotta say, a superb debut from one of the most individual cinematic talents ever to come out of the 1990s. Quentin Tarantino, Reservoir Dogs, in 1992. It's just the beginning. So I hope you enjoyed. And uh, if you did, please follow me. And please stay tuned for more on the Quentin Tarantino saga, which will be hitting at all times. And I say that, <laughs> I know that's very, it's like, what the, what, what the fuck do you mean? No, I mean, um, the sagas, when I do them, it will not just be like, you know, three episodes weekly or four, however many I decide to do. It's, I'm going to do each movie out of that person's archive or catalog or you know, portfolio, if you will. And I'll do it within a span of a couple of days. So, 
quite possibly even tonight. You might get another Tarantino episode, but for right now, thank you so much for spilling blood, spilling words, spilling verbal stress out into the ether of existence, and thank you for being that amazing universal little beat. The one that counts, like all the rest, the universal pulse that is us. So ladies and gentlemen, all my beautiful strangers and savages alike, this is Rue, the armchair elitist. This has been Confessions of a Cinephile, 1001 movies to watch or learn about before you die. Have a majestic night, and ladies and gentlemen, stay strange.